It's incredible what you learn about yourself and your children, particularly stuff you don't like to see. And I have learned that toddlers have their own set of property laws. And I'd like to read a few that I've discovered. Uh, if I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I say it's mine, it's mine. If I find it, it's mine. If uh, It's true, isn't it? If you put it down, it's mine. If uh, you're having fun with it, it's mine. Uh, if it's broken, it's yours. That's toddler property laws. And yet it's funny, we scold our kids for having that kind of an attitude, and yet when those same kids grow up and, and apply that attitude in business, we call them industrious, don't we? We say, hey, you're doing a great job. Boy, look at your success. It would really be nice if, like Paul says in Romans, if, uh, or 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, when I was a child, I acted like a child, basically, and now that I'm a man, I've put such childish things behind me. Well, in the area of having trouble with uh, coveting or uh, being, not being content or when God gives other people more things, this is something we steady struggle with. And it's not really something we outgrow. It's a struggle that we take all the way to the grave. Let's look together in the Bible at Genesis chapter 43. If you've been with us in the series on Genesis, you know that, series on Joseph, you know that Joseph brothers have had some trouble with him because he has had more. He was favored. He was the favorite son of this man named Jacob. Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. The other brothers were envious of this, so they sold him into slavery, figured they've gotten rid of him. Well, 22 years have passed now, and they figure that their, Joseph, their brother Joseph is dead. Well, a famine comes up in the land. Turns out, though, that Joseph isn't dead at all. But as we've seen, God has protected him. God has prepared him to be a leader. In fact, the leader of the whole nation of Egypt. Joseph knew the famine was coming. God told him. And so Joseph gathered grain during seven years of plenty. And now the years of the famine have started. And all over the world, there's a famine except in Egypt where there's grain. And so Joseph's brothers, who think Joseph is dead, last week we saw them, they came down to Egypt to buy grain. And they see this ruler who is their brother Joseph, but they don't know it's their brother. He disguises himself before them. And he tell, well, obviously he recognizes them and remembers what they did to him. And not out of vengeance, but rather to test them to see if, they're, if they've changed or they'd be willing to change. He treats them harshly. And he puts one of the brothers, Simeon, in jail. And he says, I'm going to keep Simeon here in jail while you go back home and get the youngest brother uh, whom my father loves, who wouldn't, wouldn't let him come down. You bring this youngest brother, Benjamin, down here. And if you don't bring him down, don't bother coming back. I'll keep Simeon and you don't get any grain. So the brothers went home and told the story to their father. And the father says, well, we ain't going back because I am not going to send Benjamin. I'm afraid some harm might befall him. Well, it's amazing what can happen when you run out of money. Or from their perspective, when you run out of grain and you start getting hungry. It's amazing how God can change your mind. 
through circumstances. Let's look in Genesis 43. We'll start in the first verse. And again, as most of these chapters, they've got quite a bit of text in it. So what we're going to do is read through it. I'll make a few comments here and there. But then we'll spend the last part of the message talking about how Genesis 43 can apply to us. So let's look. Verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they finished eating the grain which they had brought, uh, brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then the father, Israel, or Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you had, uh, still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned us, particularly about us and our relatives, asking, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to his father, Israel, Send the lad with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. About a 150 mile journey uh, down to Egypt from where they lived. Took, take about eight days, about uh, 20 miles a day on donkeys. It would take you about eight days to get down there. Round trip, take a couple of weeks, uh, a little over a couple of weeks. To give you an idea how far that is, a round trip to Egypt and back would be like riding donkeys to San Antonio, about 300 miles. So this is quite a stretch. And he says that if they hadn't delayed, that they could have returned twice now. So you think about how long it would take, journey there once, a couple of weeks, twice, about a month. Now think about this brother that's left down there, Simeon. He knows how long it takes to get there and back, because he's made the journey. He figures they're not coming back. He knows that the son that's required to be brought, Benjamin, he's the favorite son, the father didn't want to let him go. Simeon figures that what he did to Joseph in selling him into slavery, that the other brothers have done to him now just left him there. Judah, one of the brothers, tells his father, look, we're starving. You need to let Benjamin go. I'll be in charge of him. Blame me if he doesn't come back. But our little ones need food. You need food. I need food. And so, what happens? Well, the father finally is willing now to let Benjamin go. Look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry it down to the man as a present. A little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds, and take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise Return to the man, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man, that he may release to you your other brother, meaning Simeon, and Benjamin. 
As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Jacob, the father, says, take him a present. Think about the life of Jacob if you're familiar with him. We haven't talked a lot about him. Think about his past. Where in Jacob's past has he been in a tight situation and he sent a present ahead? With his brother, Esau, right. Isn't it funny how we repeat old habits? And Jacob just didn't like that to trust God. But rather, he needed to send something ahead because we don't do something for nothing. We're the same way. You know, we argue over who pays the tab you know, at restaurants when we really hope that the other person, uh, you know, pushes harder so that we can say, well, okay. But, you know, to save face, we'll try to... We don't like to take something for nothing. There's got to be a present involved. You've got to have some kind of a contribution. And, you know, it's almost kind of insulting to think that, that Joseph couldn't... If he really wanted this stuff, he couldn't have sent people to Canaan to get it. I mean, think about the ruler of Egypt lacking anything or is anything that he couldn't get that uh, a few donkeys with some pistachio nuts taken down there. I mean, uh, we'll do the same thing with the Lord in a spiritual sense. You know, we don't like to uh, just take the grace that God offers. But we've got to add to that, as if we can, our pistachio nuts. You know, these brothers had nothing to commend themselves before Joseph. They were going there, and they could have been uh, put in jail. They could have been kept there as slaves, because they were accused of being spies. And the money that was returned in their pouches, now they could also be accused of being thieves. They had nothing to commend them. This little present wasn't going to do anything. In fact, we're going to see that how many times the brothers emphasize this present, but yet Joseph never says a thing about it when he sees it. And that's the way it is with God. You know, in truth, as we're born, born sinners, we grow up and sin, we have nothing to commend ourselves before a holy God. What are we going to do? Offer Him a life of good works? You know, a lot of people hope, yeah, well, I've, got, I've done this sin, but, you know, I've also done all these good things. And we just kind of hope that on Judgment Day, God says, you know what, well, you've done a lot of good things. Come on into heaven. Yeah, I know you've done some bad things, but you've done more good things. That's not the way it works. We can't appease a holy God with pistachio nuts. You can't appease a holy God with a life of good works when you also have a life of sin. You've got to be holy. So what do you do? Well, you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross to take away your sins. Now you can stand before a holy God, holy and acceptable in His sight. That's the only way. This aspect of grace... Jacob didn't understand. He wanted to try to save face or have some kind of contribution to being accepted through a present. The rest of these verses in the chapter, in fact, the next couple of chapters, are focusing on one day. This is an important day in the life of Joseph and his brothers. It's a day that he's been waiting for for a long, long time. There's no other story in Genesis. There's no other day in Genesis that's given this much text. And I didn't look into it because it would have taken a long time, but I wonder how many, if there's even another day in the Bible that's given this much text.
context. Maybe even the life of Jesus there is. But this is an important day. And it's, it's tempting to just kind of keep going all the way through the next couple of chapters. And so we may do that. If you uh, want to leave around 1 o'clock, you're welcome to. But I'm just going to keep going. No. Teasing. Some people are going, oh man, I know we should have gone to First Baptist. But this is an important day. So they go down and they stand before Joseph. Now look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said, brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks. Uh, in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. That verse always struck me as funny. Who cares about the donkeys? You know? Okay, verse 19. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And he said, Oh my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we've brought it back in our hand. We've also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he said, Be at ease, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, don't you know that was... A Simeon was glad to hear they finally came. And then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet, gave their uh, donkeys fodder, so they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard that they were there, uh, that they were to eat a meal there. This week I wanted to borrow a tape from Brian. He has the Bible on cassette tape and I I only have the New Testament on cassette tape, and I wanted to borrow a tape from the Old Testament. So I gave him a call, and I said, hey, can I borrow this tape? He said, sure. And I said, by the way, I have your, new, your set of New Testament tapes. And he said, uh, no, you don't, I have them. And I said, no, I really think I have them, because I had a set of New Testament tapes that I didn't know where they came from. And he says, no. He says, I have my tapes. And I said, well, where do these the other tapes come from then? And uh, he says, well, the, the God of your father has given you the tapes on your shelf. <laughs> I don't know where these New Testament tapes come from, but hey, I got some now. I guess God just made them appear, because I don't remember buying them. But that's kind of the attitude that Joseph's brothers had here. You know, they, they thought, hey, our money is returning our sacks, and the steward says, no, I had your money. Uh, God has put the treasure in your sack. So the apprehension that they feel initially is kind of gone. They're welcome. They're set at ease. No, you're not thieves now. They brought their other brother down, so they're able to clear themselves. They're brought to Joseph's house. They're going to have a meal, get their feet washed, and their donkeys get food. So they're kind of set at ease. Hey, everything's okay. And then they get their present ready, because Joseph is about to come at noon. Okay, look at verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Notice he didn't say anything about the present. And he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. 
As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. The years of suffering and even prosperity hadn't hardened Joseph, as a lot of men can get bitter about their past, bitter about the hard life that God's given them. Or even when they get success, they figure that emotion no longer has to play a part. And they can be hard and be cruel. And yet you don't see that with Joseph. He still is a very emotional, still a very caring person. And I think that's because his relationship with God stayed loving. He was able to love other people because in spite of his hard time, in spite of his good time, uh, he stayed focused in his relationship with the Lord. Joseph's about seven years older than Benjamin. Okay, The last time Joseph saw Benjamin, Benjamin was about ten years old. You know what a ten-year-old boy looks like? Doesn't look like a 32-year-old man. And that's what was standing before him now. Twenty-two years been added on to this ten-year-old boy he last saw. Now understand who this boy is, who Benjamin and Joseph are. They are the only children of their parents. These other brothers are sons of other wives. So this is a very tender person to Joseph. Notice it says that when he saw his own mother's son, that he was deeply stirred. You think about that. There is somebody in your life, a brother, perhaps an only sibling, whom you hadn't seen in 22 years, whom you loved, who never gave you the grief that these other brothers gave you. And now you see them for the first time, and all that time, he doesn't know that he's looking at you, and yet you know very well who it is. Don't you know Joseph wanted to just run over to him and wrap his arms around him and hug him? Tell him, you know, all of what's happened and cry a little bit and just kind of catch up. But he couldn't do it. He wasn't going to show his hand yet. He's, the brothers still had not passed all the tests that they were to pass. And you know, this was hard. This is something that you and I struggle with and a lot of times we'll buckle. When in a situation our emotions are so strong that rather than either leave the situation and go cry someplace, we'll stay in the situation and we'll succumb to the situation. We'll give in. Yet Joseph, you see in the life of this guy an incredible patience and a willingness to wait for God's timing. You saw it all through his suffering, how he, he endured that, waiting, Lord, I know it's going to happen someday. I know that the dreams that you've given me are going to happen someday. He was willing to wait for God's timing in spite of his own desires. And here, having not seen his brother for 22 years, he's a big, strong, strapping 32-year-old man now, not this little kid. And he wants to go over and, and talk to him and hug him, and yet he controls himself, or he, he, go, he walks out, and then when he comes back, now in verse 31, he, he controls himself. And, and because it says that, you get the clear indication that it was hard. There was an effort required there. He wanted to show himself, but he couldn't. 
He was waiting on God's timing. His emotions did not rule him. He waited for the Lord. He washed his face and he came out and he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. So right down the line in order. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. And he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. You know, believe it or not, today the brothers are our good examples by which we get the principles that we can apply. Generally, they've been bad examples from which we've said, don't do this. But now they've done several things here that we can learn from. The first of which, or I want to mention first of all, that given five times as much to one brother. What do you do when God gives others more? We all struggle with this. Seeing you know, God blessing other people in ways that we're not blessed. Well, I'll tell you what. The first thing that I see in this chapter of what the, how these brothers handle the situation, when God gives others more, you maintain your financial integrity. You don't cut corners in order to try to get more. Notice what Jacob said back in verse 12. He says, Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. I've got a friend who, when he was in college, he had a mathematics teacher who required all the students to take their exams in pencil. And then they took their exams and turned it in. The next time they came back into the class, he says, You know what? I want us to grade our own exams. So he handed the tests back out. And he says, you know, I'll let you grade your own paper. Well, of course, you know, they're all pleased about this. And so they grade their papers and turn it back in. And then the next time they come into class, he hands the graded exams back. Except stapled to the graded exam is a photocopy of the exam as they turned it in initially. And if they had made any changes when they graded their own paper, he put a big zero at the top. My friend didn't tell me what grade he got. I'm not sure. But uh, you see that that day they were tested not just for what they knew, but for who they were. There was two tests that day. One was mathematics. The other was honesty. And a lot of times in our lives, we will think that God is working on us in some certain area. Or we think that all we're having to deal with is, let's say, mathematics. When really it's a character issue that God is testing. Will you be honest? The brothers had two tests as well. The first test, they passed. And yet, 22 years ago, they failed it. We talked a little about this last week. Remember when they sold Joseph into slavery way back when? They got some money for it that wasn't theirs to have. Joseph knew this. He saw the transaction. He knew what was happening when he got sold. So he gives them a little money that's not theirs. And what do they do? They try to make it right. They said, hey, this money... This is an ours. We shouldn't take it. The Apostle Paul wrote a verse in the New Testament regarding finances. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, We're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. When the cashier at Kroger 
or wherever you go, that's where we go, gives you too much money back, how do you look at that? You say, well, you know, I don't have that much to begin with. Thank you, Lord. God is blessing me. You chuckle, but it's incredible how we can rationalize cutting, our, cutting financial corners. Or do you say, look, this is an opportunity for me to give glory to God with my honesty. The brothers could have justified in their eyes keeping the money. Saying, hey, we paid them. You know, I don't know where this money came from in our sacks. Shoot, if they can't keep their bookkeeping straight, their loss is our gain. You know, we'll do that kind of crazy stuff. If it's not your money, don't keep it. It's incredible how we say, well, we don't have that much. Well, Lord, you must be blessing me. No, they made restitution for any kind of appearance of wrongdoing. So just because God's given other people more, there's money that's not yours. It's not yours to hang on to. Maintain your financial integrity. Don't try to cut corners. Secondly, when God gives others more, and this is hard, but yet it's there. Rejoice in what God has graciously given you. And the words that you might want to underline there are graciously and you. Because everything you have is because of God's grace. Starting with the forgiveness that's given in the Lord Jesus. It's not anything that you deserve, or that I deserve. It's His grace. It's undeserved favor that He lavishes spiritually on us. And even in our physical needs, rejoice in what God's graciously given you. The very last verse, it said, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And yet, it says, they feasted and drank freely with him. You remember they were seated according to their age and it caused them to be astonished. You've got the oldest up here all the way down to Benjamin the youngest. Now what are the chances that 11 brothers are going to be seated in the order of their age? You don't think they realized that God was involved here? Would have awakened their minds of the empty spot. Joseph sitting, should have been sitting right there by Benjamin. And then right after Joseph seats them in that, in that order, what does he do? He lavishes on Benjamin favor that he doesn't give the other brothers. The exact same situation that 22 years ago the brothers failed. They failed in the issue of honesty. They kept money that wasn't theirs. They failed in the issue of jealousy because Joseph was favored, so they sold him. And now Benjamin is favored. And what did they do? They feasted and they enjoyed fellowship with him. Even though he got more than they did. Think about this. How do you feel when other people get more? You hear about somebody getting a raise, you didn't get the raise, or maybe it's even in the company that you're in. They get the raise and you don't. What do you say? Oh, that's great. Praise the Lord. That's hard, isn't it? Are you, are you able to sit back and say, wait a minute. Lord, thank you for what I do have. So always, always griping about what we don't have. You know, Benjamin got five times as much. How would you feel if somebody got ten times as much? There was a king named Saul in the Old Testament who was insanely jealous of little David, who would become King David. Look at these verses. This is right after David killed Goliath. The ladies, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. 
Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. I think it's neat. A refrain is something you repeat over and over. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. What was the pivot in Saul's life that caused him to be jealous of David? It was this refrain. It was the fact that everybody else was crediting David with tens of thousands, but Saul with only thousands. The sin of comparison is what, what ate Saul's lunch. He went downhill from there. As so you do the same thing in your life and mine, what are you comparing yourself to? You ought to be comparing yourself to yourself with or without the Lord Jesus Christ. Not me and not anybody else. You compare yourself before the Lord Jesus or after the Lord Jesus, you've got nothing but gratitude. And that's really what you ought to be comparing if comparing is what you do. The sin of comparison will eat your lunch. There's an up-and-coming opera star named Susan Graham. Uh, Texas Monthly did an interview with her not long ago, and they tried to compare her to Cecilia Bartoli, who's a very famous mezzo-soprano. And, uh, and they asked her, well, are you going to be the next uh, Bartoli? And, and she said, quote, I'm not sure I want to be the next anyone. I'd rather be the first Susan Graham. That's a healthy attitude to have. I mean, obviously we have models and, and in a healthy sense, idols or role models. But to want to be somebody else is not a healthy thing because God's made us all different, given us all different stages of life. I heard a kind of a neat fable about a wristwatch that envied the position that the town clock had. They thought, you know what? I wish that I had the influence that that town clock had. Instead of, of uh, serving all the people in the town, I am strapped and stuck to one person's arm. And yet one day, this wristwatch got its opportunity. The town clock broke. And so what did they do? The town said, all right, wristwatch. And they raised it up, and it, and it sat right in the place of the town clock. Well, you can guess what happened. Nobody could see it. It was useless. Whereas before, it was helping someone. And the moral of this story, basically, is that in being elevated, if your influence is eliminated, it's better not to be elevated. You know, we ought to, we ought to pray that God, we ought to pray that we don't lose the influence that God has given us by coveting something larger than we have now if we don't have the adequate resources or character to handle that larger responsibility. Because in effect, your net, your net gain is a loss. The sin of comparison to me really fails. Uh, we fail when we compare ourselves with other people because we're not taking into account the sovereignty of God. God in His love keeps things from us that we keep begging Him for. You ever wonder why? Could it be that if He gave it to you, you'd lose the influence you have now? Could it be that if He gave you more money, if that's what you're coveting, that it would actually be a loss for you? Could it be that if He gave you 
that spouse that it would actually be a loss for you? Could it be that if he gave you more fame or popularity, your, in, your influence would actually decrease? You see the love of God there in saying no. So we ought to praise the Lord, not only for what we have, but also praise Him for what we don't have. And when God says no in our lives, don't have a problem with that. Trust Him. He knows what He's doing. Finally, hold nothing as dear to you as obedience to God. In the very first part of the chapter, we saw when the famine was severe, notice at that point, their father says, go back, buy us a little food. And Judah was wise. He spoke to his father and said, if you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you don't send him, we will not go down. Judah realizes, look, the deal is Benjamin's got to go or we can't go down and get grain. Jacob knew that, the father. That's why he said, go buy us just a little. Just a little. Maybe he'll give us just a little and I don't have to do what's required. Norman Schwarzkopf made the statement, and this is great. He said, the truth of the matter is you, you know what the right thing is to do all the time. The hard part is doing it. You know what the right thing is to do. The hard part is doing it. In the last chapter, remember last week? It was the brothers who were dragging their feet. Remember he says, why are you all just staring at each other? Go down to Egypt and get us some grain. Well now, it's the father that's dragging his feet. Now the shoe's on the other foot, so to speak. He is not willing to give up what's required in order to provide for the family. And Judah has to say, look, I'm starving. Our kids are starving. Let Benjamin go. And so finally, when, it's, when he is all but pried out of his hands, he's willing. Now in verse 11, he says, Well, if it must be so, verse 11, he says, Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. May God Almighty grant you compassion. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now he's willing to do it. You know, we'll do that with God. We'll tell the Lord, Lord, uh, I'm willing to give you all of my life except this one area. With, with uh, Jacob, it was, Lord, I'm willing to give you all my other sons except Benjamin. Yeah, Simeon, he's down there, that's fine. You can keep him. But Benjamin, I don't want to send him. What I want to ask you this morning is, what's your Benjamin? What is it in your life that is the exception to obeying the Lord. Maybe your pride and not apologizing in a situation that's gone on way too long. Maybe it's money. You realize, I'm going to take a financial hit if I'm obedient, if I do what integrity says is right. Maybe it's a relationship that you know you ought not be in. What is it that is your Benjamin, that's your exception to a full obedience to God? If you are not willing to give that Benjamin up, it is amazing how God is able to provide the circumstance to take each of your fingers off of that thing to where you will learn that your joy, your sustenance, your provision, everything in your life is as a result of God, not this Benjamin. 
Jacob says, if I don't have Benjamin, I might as well die. That's the wrong attitude. Attitude ought to be, if I don't have God, I might as well die. What happens if God takes Benjamin, like he did? What are you going to do? What happens if God takes your spouse? What are you going to do? What happens if God takes your money? What are you going to do? If that is your Benjamin, our Benjamin ought to be God. That is what we cling to and are not willing to let go of. Not all these other things that compete. J.I. Packer made the statement, we dishonor God if we proclaim a Savior who satisfies and then go around discontent. Patrick Morley wrote a book called Seasons of a Man's Life. I love this statement. He says, the turning point in, in our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is. The God we want is an idol. One in our image. One that does things our way. The God who is often doesn't do things our way. And yet they're the best way. And through that we learn. As he provides situations that take away everything in our lives but our relationship with him. And we learn what is true. That God alone is our life. God alone is our sustenance. God alone is our joy. Not the Benjamins. So I want to encourage you, whatever it is that's keeping you, from an obedient life walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold it with an open hand. If you hold it with a closed hand, you can get those fingers pried open, and that's a painful process. Hold it with an open hand. With the attitude of Job, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The focus is on the Lord, not on your Benjamin. Let's pray. Lord, early in the history of Israel, you told them, you shall have no other gods before me. And even as Christians, Lord, we know that the Bible says that, yet we walk around with our exceptions to our love for you. That we will love you up to this point, but if it requires giving this up, we hesitate. To our own detriment, we hesitate and require such pain to be brought in our lives as to take our clinging fingers off of our sin and to open it up and give it to you. Lord, I pray for the person who is here this morning, clinging to the Benjamin of a life of good works, thinking that that is what's going to earn them heaven, to show their pistachio nuts to you. Lord, may they turn and realize they stand before you, a sinner in need of forgiveness and need to place their faith in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, as we walk through this life and see that you've given other people more, help us not to be so wrapped up in what they have that we cut corners financially or that we aren't willing to have our integrity. Father, help us to walk strong and faithful and to cling to no Benjamin but to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.